Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The psalmist is literally amazed that the God who is so great, the creator, who made the universe by speaking it into existence, he calls it the work of thy fingers, suggesting that it was no great expenditure of effort on God's part. He didn't say that it took the strength of your biceps or your shoulders or your back, but he says God made the planets the solar system, the galaxies, he made it all by his finger work. And the psalmist says, when I think about how great and majestic and vast it all is, when I consider thy heavens, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the work of thy fingers, the question he said that I ask is, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I that you would even take notice of the likes of of a little ant like me. The great God has thought upon me. He's favored mankind, and the psalmist is struck with wonder over this wonderful fact. It is a helpful thing for us periodically, my beloved, to reflect on how good the Lord has been to us, as the hymn writer says, to count our many blessings. I'm good at counting my burdens, and most people are, but we need to count our many blessings. For God has been so good to every one of us here this morning. I received a note in the mail from a good friend of mine, Brother Bob Coleman, from the Augusta Primitive Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, this week, and in the note was included his list of reasons to be thankful. In pastoral ministry, I've often encouraged people that were depressed or anxious to take a little piece of paper and to list 10 things for which they were thankful. And that's a very helpful exercise, and you ought to try it sometime. But interestingly, Brother Coleman's list of reasons to be thankful doesn't contain 10 entries. It contains 179 entries and it fills seven, eight and a half by 11 inch pages as he reflects just one after the other on the many reasons that he has to be thankful, his blessings. He's counting his blessings. Here's a sampling of some of the things he listed. I have in my heart, he says, a burning desire to know what is truth. That's something he says I'm thankful for. He says, I'm thankful for the inspired and preserved King James authorized version of the Bible. He said, I'm thankful to realize I'm a sinner, eternally saved by the grace of God alone, without any effort on my part. He said, I'm thankful to know God and to be known of God. I'm thankful to know him as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for a God-given spiritual life. 
He said, I'm thankful to live in the best part of the best country on earth. Now, I think some of us in North Carolina might disagree with that Georgian, but it is the best country on earth. He said, I'm thankful for daily devotions as husband and wife before bedtime and reading the scriptures and praying together. He said, I'm thankful to be blessed with a lifetime of reading the scriptures daily, starting as a young boy. He said, I'm thankful to rejoice in the knowledge of the covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save a people out of every family from Adam to the last heir promise that is born into this world. I'm thankful for the blessed assurance that my name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm thankful for the blessing of knowing that I will not be judged for heaven's pure world because of my sins or my shortcomings. Thankful to be heaven-bound, he said, I'm thankful we will see our loved ones again that have gone before us in death. Isn't that something to be thankful for today? I'm thankful to be a citizen of the kingdom of God here in time, the church. I'm thankful for membership in the old line Primitive Baptist Church. I'm thankful for the desire to be in church worship every week. He has that desire. He said, thank you, Lord, for the desire to be there. I'm thankful that we've had many elders in our home over the years. I'm thankful for the Lord's presence in our daily lives. And I've just picked out a sampling here. I'm thankful for the desire to be an encouragement to others, especially those who are of the household of faith. I'm thankful for encouragement that I've received from others. I'm thankful to be an American citizen. I'm thankful for the highway system and transportation. I'm thankful for railroads and airlines. I'm thankful for daily mail service. Thankful for a constitution that's almost 250 years old, a very unique situation in the annals of history. I'm thankful for other people's prayers for me. Thankful for the desire to pray on my own part. Thankful for soldiers and law enforcement and other emergency services. I'm thankful for the 700,000 plus that have died in wars to preserve our country and our freedom. I'm thankful to live in a comfortable house. For electricity and the distribution system in place put there by the capitalistic system. I'm thankful for natural gas availability through the thousands of miles of pipelines put in place by the capitalistic system. Brother Bob's a capitalist. I'm thankful for telephones, for computers, for air conditioning, refrigeration, ice, central heating and cooling in our houses and buildings, fossil fuels, cooking stoves, clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, the availability of sewage systems, running water in the house, ability to taste and feel, grocery stores with shelves filled by the work of thousands of people. I'm thankful for a home where love abides from a God-fearing wife and family. Thankful for farmers, cattlemen, the beauty and usefulness of flowers, shrubs, and trees, our church meeting house, strength, wisdom. And one of the things he says is, as he closes his letter, here's his last line, may we continue to live a life of wonder, an expectation of wonders yet to behold. May we continue to live a life of wonder. Now that's what the psalmist in our text is doing. He's Lost in wonder, love and praise. When I consider thy heavens, what is man that God would take notice of him? What is wonder? Well, the dictionary defines it as the emotion aroused by something awe-inspiring. The emotion in your heart aroused by something awe-inspiring, astounding, 
or surprising. Some of the synonyms for wonder are amazement, astonishment, something marvelous, something surprising. But alas, I think you would agree with me this morning, it is the most common thing in the world to lose the sense of wonder that you once had and to begin to take for granted the things that once evoked our awe and amazement. We lose that wonder. We adopt an entitlement mentality in our life, don't we? Have you seen it in your life? Can you sing amazing grace without thinking about how truly amazing it is? You say, well, I'm so used to it, Brother Mike. That's what happens in our lives as we get used to things that once surprised us and we begin to take them for granted. We don't live with a sense of wonder. We lose the sense that God is good to us. Someone once said, if the stars only came out once every 100 years, we would stay up all night to see them. But they're out there every night, aren't they? And we just don't even take notice anymore because we've lost how amazing it truly is. I think this is one way that we are to be like little children. Listen to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus says, Except ye be converted and become as little children. Notice you need a change in your thinking. That's what conversion is. Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, Jesus is talking to his disciples on this occasion, and they have been arguing as to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the most important? Who's the VIP? Who is indispensable in the church? You know, people can get into that mindset, can't they? And Jesus takes a little child and sets him in the midst. He's going to use this little child as an object lesson to teach them that they need to be more like this little child instead of arguing over who's the greatest, except you be converted. Do you ever need conversions on an ongoing basis? I do. My thinking goes astray, and I need to be converted over and over again. Now, I don't need to be regenerated or born again over and again. That's a one-time thing, and my friends, when you're spiritually alive, you won't ever need that to happen to you again. But I do need daily changes, conversions in my thinking. And he says, I want you to become like little children. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself is this little child. You see, that's one of the characteristics of little children is they recognize that they don't have it all together. They're dependent. They know they need help. They're humble. And he said, you need to be like that. Instead of thinking that I'm great, he says, remember how needy you are. Be more like this little child. And he says, whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One of the expressions of a child's humility is that they never seem to lose their wonder at the world in which they live. Lori and I have a little 18-month-old granddaughter, and, you know, we get video clips of her on a regular basis, and one of the things that has struck me in watching her recently is to see her fascination with every little detail of the world around her. She especially likes airplanes. Every time an airplane flies over, she looks up and points up and says airplane, and she is just mesmerized by these mighty birds in the sky. But you know, she's also mesmerized by dirt and wonders what it tastes like. She tried to eat a handful of it the other day. 
and she's mesmerized by flowers and by dogs and cats and by butterflies. Children have a sense of surprise at the world in which they live. Everything seems new to them. They find joy in the most common things, a butterfly, a flower, a rock, a new taste or aroma. They live like every experience in life is Christmas morning. There's a sense of amazement and wonder in a little child's life. You know, some of us have long since gotten over that, haven't we? And we've started taking for granted the things that really should captivate us. Have you ever looked at the precision of a little flower petal? I mean, the veins in it and the colors and the texture of it and the precision with which it's made, it is an architectural engineering marvel. A little flower petal. And not only the petal, but the whole flower. From the root to the stem to the fruit that is born, every part of it is literally amazing. But yet, we just take it for granted. Now you say, well, Brother Mike, nobody has the time to stop and smell every rose. You're right. But we do need to stop and smell a rose from time to time and learn to live a life of wonder. I want to say this morning that wonder is the spirit of genuine worship. In Romans 11, verse 33, we read the language of the Apostle Paul after three chapters on the sovereignty of God. Romans 8, 9, and 10, he's described or discussed the sovereignty of God. And notice how theology leads to doxology, how doctrine leads to praise and worship. In Romans eleven thirty-three. As the Apostle says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, you read that word, oh, he's simply saying that I've lost words to verbalize what I'm thinking. Oh, the depth of the riches. He's just saying, my, how very deep and rich are the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now, he didn't say, explain to me his judgments and his ways. He says they're unsearchable. How unsearchable. You say, how unsearchable are they? He says, more unsearchable than I can even describe. His ways are past finding out. He's simply saying that it's beyond my ability to comprehend. My beloved, that's the language of worship. Worship involves a palpable awareness that there are some things about God that defy comprehension. I've always loved the response of the blind man in John chapter 9 after Jesus healed him. He was called on the carpet by the Jewish religious leaders. And they asked him, how did he give you your sight? And he said, well, he just made clay and anointed my eyes and suddenly I could see. And they said, but how did he do it? And he said, I told you. And they said, well, just give God the glory, for we know this man's a sinner. And I love his response in John 9, 25. Whether he be a sinner or not, I know not. But one thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. Now, he said, I can't explain how it happened, but I can explain this fact that I couldn't see before. I can see now. I give him the glory and the credit. Notice, this is the spirit of worship understanding and just accepting that some things defy explanation. 
Some things are greater than we can comprehend. What about Moses at the burning bush? Imagine how you would respond if you were walking in the woods one day and you saw a bush that was burning, but it was not consumed. That is, it just continued to burn. You would say, well, there's some perpetual fuel somewhere that is feeding that bush, but you didn't find a propane tank. You didn't find a gas line. It was just burning and burning and burning and not diminished in the least little bit. How would you, my friends, respond? Well, Moses turned aside to see it, and as he got closer, God says, take your shoes from your feet, for the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. I want to tell you, when you meet something that defies explanation, the best thing you and I can do is to just marvel at it with a spirit of wonder and to cease to try to explain it all. Albert Einstein, in his book, The World as I See It, said the fairest thing that we can experience in life is the mysterious. He who knows it not can no longer wonder, no longer feel amazement, and is as good as dead a snuffed-out candle. Now, my beloved, I want to be able to continue to wonder. I think that's the best way to live life is to understand that there is mystery involved. There are things that are beyond our finite ability to grasp. That's why exclamation is the language of worship. Oh, the depth of the rich. That's an exclamation. It's an exclamatory sentence. How unsearchable. He didn't explain or try to define how unsearchable. He just says they're unsearchable. You know, that's the language of worship, exclamation. We sing a song that says, how great thou art. You say, well, how great is he, brother Mike? I can't possibly define that or explain it. I can just step back lost in wonder, love, and praise and say, he is greater than you and I can even imagine. How great he is. How about how beautiful heaven must be? You say, well, I don't know. How beautiful is it? It's more beautiful than you ever imagined. And the best thing we can do right now is to wonder at that fact, to just like Job, lay our hand over our mouth and cease to talk and worship God for his greatness, for his majesty. But the fact is, it's a sad reality that we often want an explanation, a definition, a recipe for everything. We want to have it lined out in how it all works. But I'll tell you again, God cannot be fully comprehended by a formula or defined by a chart. The words of Zophar the Naamathite in Job chapter 11, verse 7, have meant a lot to me over the years. Zophar said, canst thou by searching find out God? That's quite a question. Can you explore enough, research enough, investigate enough where you can finally say, I've figured it all out? Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? You think you're going to reach a point where you can graduate summa cum laude from the school of theology? and you know all there is to know about God, you say, I'm an expert. I'm a scholar. I'm telling you, dear friends, there is no such thing. There is no expert. There is no scholar. You say, well, this is a religious professional. My beloved, we're all kindergartners when it comes to figuring out how truly great and glorious and majestic our God is. He's greater than you can even imagine. You say, Brother Mike, really? brags on God. He talks him up too much. I'm telling you, that's impossible. I couldn't say enough about him. I can't exaggerate the greatness of God, and you can't either. 
And about the time we start to think that God is fully explainable or we get bored with God, my beloved, we've lost the sense of wonder. I suggest that you need to be more like a little child who is amazed by a flower or a butterfly or a rock or an airplane overhead. You know, there was a time if you'd seen an airplane that you would have truly watched it until it was out of sight. You know, I was in Africa several years ago, and it amazed me how that many of these folks in the little poor villages in Kenya and Uganda, many of them had never seen an aircraft, an airplane. They really didn't understand the concepts. It was foreign to them. I used the illustration of an airplane and uh, made a spiritual point from it, a religious point, and also used the illustration of a jigsaw puzzle. And Brother Johnson said, Brother Mike, these folks, many of them have never seen an airplane, and they sure haven't seen a jigsaw puzzle. They don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, I was wondering why they were looking at me quizzically with question marks on their faces. And can you imagine the first time you see something you've never seen? It is surprising. Well, my beloved, never get over the surprise. That's what I'm trying to say. Learn to live your life with a sense of wonder because we are creatures. We are men and God is the creator. And what really are we? What value do we have? What importance do we really have that he would take notice of us? When I consider thy heavens, what is man? Who am I? My beloved, never cease to be surprised. That's what I'm saying at God taking notice of you. And let's make application of this thought in a few specifics. First, never quit being surprised at the wonder of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says that one of his names is wonderful. Do you know what the word wonderful means? Full of wonder. That is, when you look at Jesus Christ, he's more than everybody else and everyone else that you've ever experienced or encountered in life. Now, I've encountered some interesting people. Everybody, if you have the right attitude, everybody you meet is an interesting person at some level. And I've enjoyed the fellowship of many people in my life, but I have to tell you, never have I met anyone like Jesus. He's in a class all by himself. He's called the only begotten Son of God, and that expression, only begotten, means the unique one. Jesus is unique in history. Because he wasn't only truly man, but he was truly God at the same time. He is the creator. Did you know the man of Galilee that walked the shores of this world some 2,000 years ago named Jesus of Nazareth? Did you know that he is the one who was with the Father in all eternity past? And by him all things were made that are made. That's what John chapter 1 teaches us. In the beginning was the Word, capital W-O-R-D. He's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of God. The second person of the Trinity is called the Word. And in the beginning, that's the same beginning as Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. At that same point, the Word was already there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Notice the distinction of persons in the Godhead. And the Word was God. Notice the unity of essence. 
They're one in essence, that is, one in attribute, one in glory, one in mind, but yet there's a distinction of persons between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the Creator. And notice verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you think about the incarnation, which means the enfleshing of the Son of God. God manifest in the flesh. God assumed human nature. And his godhood was not diminished one iota in the process. He's still fully God, but now he's also truly man. Jesus Christ, in the babe in Bethlehem's manger, how long was it? You know, when babies are born, they, they're like somebody catching a fish. They always tell you how much it weighed and how long it was. Well, babies, when they're born, they say the baby was eight pounds, one ounce, how much it weighs, and 18 and a half inches long. It's like, look at my fish. Look at my harvest. <laughs> look at the baby that we've got. I've always thought that was strange. But um, let's say Jesus, when he was born in Bethlehem, was 18 inches long. Here's a verse for you, Colossians 2.9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How can you pack the immensity of God into a baby that's just a span long? It's wonderful, my beloved. It's full of amazement. It defies explanation. But I believe it's true that Jesus was God told out, manifest in the flesh. He was truly God, and therefore there's more to him than appears on the surface. There's more to him than meets the eye. He's wonderful in his person. He's wonderful in his names. Have you ever meditated on the various names given to Jesus in the Bible? He's the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. He's the great Shiloh, peace giver. Unto him the gathering of the people shall be. He's wonderful. He's counselor. He's mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. Come to the New Testament. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the bright and morning star. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. My beloved, He's wonderful. Each of these names, like shining a light on a diamond, as the light is broken by that prism, and you see the different colors, so each of these names reveals a different attribute of Christ's character. He's wonderful. He's wonderful not only in his person, in his names, but in his offices. He's our prophet who teaches the truth of God. He's our priest who makes the sacrifice for our sins and makes intercession for us. And he's our king who reigns as the sovereign of the universe. The one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's wonderful in his life. For 33 and a half years, the Lord Jesus lived a sinless, impeccable life. I'll tell you, that's a record that has not been broken or even challenged by the first person beyond him. A sinless life for 33 and I can't live 33 seconds without struggling with my old nature, but Jesus lived a perfect, impeccable life. My friends, that's wonderful. It's amazing the life he lived. He did more good in 33 and a half years than the whole bunch of us put together have done aggregately in our lifetime. The Lord Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He pleased his father from the manger to the cross. He said, I do always those things that please my heavenly father. He had compassion on the hurting. 
He forgave the sins of the penitent. He was kind to the outcasts. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. The Lord Jesus did not rub shoulders with the elite of the day, but with the common people who saw their need of him, and it's still the same today. Yes, my beloved, he's full of wonder. I just stand back sometimes in amazement as I think about Jesus. He's wonderful in his life. He's wonderful in his death. You know, when he died, the centurion marveled. That means he was amazed. He was astonished. He was struck with awe and wonder. He just couldn't explain it because he laid his life down. You see, usually they would come and break the legs to hasten death. If you broke the legs of someone who was crucified, then they couldn't continue to adjust themselves. They would finally suffocate, you know, without the ability to raise themselves and relieve the pressure on their lungs. So they would come and break the legs of people that were crucified in order to hasten their death. But when he came and broke the legs of one prisoner, then the other, he came to Jesus and he was already dead. And he marveled, it says. Wonder in his death. He, he was amazed that he had passed on so quickly. And you say, well, how did that happen? Because he laid his life down. No man took it from him. He laid it down of himself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again the wonder of Christ. What about the wonder of grace? Live your life astonished at Jesus Christ. He's the best friend you'll ever have. He's God of very God. Come down to this earth to take your place and mine upon the cross. And he did for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. May I never lose the sense of wonder at who he is and what he's done. And may I never quit singing amazing grace. You know, John Newton used that adjective on purpose. Amazing grace. Now, we sing it like this. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We yawn our way. My beloved, may our eyes be wide open and our hearts aflutter as we think about the fact that God blesses the unworthy like us. You know, there's not a one of us here today who deserves the kindnesses that have been shown us in our lives. You may think you do. You may have the opinion I'm a VIP, but you go mix and mingle in this world a little while and you'll realize you're not a VIP. I stood in a long line at the post office yesterday morning. You only have a two-hour window at the Shalope post office on Saturday morning to be able to mail a package, you know, to have a clerk serve you. And I stood in a long line. I got there about 10, 15. I should have been there before 10 when they opened so that I could be first in line. But I was in a long line, and we stood there. They only had like two clerks working with this line of people. And made the tongue-in-cheek comment that if people knew that I was a VIP, they'd let me in the front of the line. But everybody just kind of looked at me. Some of them just looked at me like I was crazy. Others kind of chuckled a little bit. The fact is, my friends, I can't get preferential treatment in this world. About the time I think I'm really important, all I have to do is you know, stand in line for a little while, I realize I'm just a common person like everybody else. But you know, not only am I not a VIP, but I deserve the wrath of God forever because of my sinful life. I don't want to get real detailed, but the fact is, I deserve the judgment of God. By nature, I'm a sinner. And every other human being is as well outside of the Lord Jesus again, who was virgin born. But you know, grace is truly amazing because it means a wretch like me is saved and rescued 
when they don't deserve it. Amazing grace, the hymn writer says, that saved a wretch like me. And you know, Phil Donahue said back in the day, I don't like that word wretch in amazing grace. And some have even changed it in church hymnals to read like this, amazing grace that saved one like me. But I have to tell you, the word wretch is a Bible word. Two times it's used in the Bible. One time by someone who knew he was a wretch, Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm a wretch. And once by a church that had forgotten they were wretches. Thou knowest not, the church at Laodicea, that thou art wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. The word wretch literally speaks of somebody who's unworthy and who deserves the opposite of kindness. You see, not only did we not earn or deserve or merit God's favor, but we have earned the very opposite of it. And that's why grace is so amazing. It is amazing. It's more amazing than anything you'll see at Ripley's, believe it or not. It's more amazing than anything that these sci-fi movie makers can dream up. The grace of God, that God in heaven would favor the likes of you and me. That truly is a wonder. It's wonderful. The wonder of his grace. We need to learn to live with the attitude of David in 2 Samuel 7:18, When God made covenant with David about building him a house, David went in and sat before the Lord, says this text, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? I just can't believe it. It's just beyond my ability to explain. Who am I? I'm not worthy. That's the story of God's people throughout the Bible. I'm unworthy to be called your son. That's what the prodigal said when he came home. He said to his father, Father, make me a hard servant, for I'm not worthy to be restored to my former blessing. That's what Jacob said, I am unworthy of the least of God's mercies or of the truth. My beloved, that's a healthy mindset for the child of grace. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. Now, I like to think that I deserve better than I'm getting. People owe me kindness. They owe me respect. And we ought to be respectful to each other. But the fact is, my beloved, if people knew me like God knows me, they probably would never talk to me again, or you as well. I'm surprised by the grace of God. Are you surprised by His grace? That's a good way to live. Live surprised at His grace. What about the wonder of His love? John 3.16 says, For God loved the world. Is that what it says? No. I left out one little word. Two-letter word. For God so loved the world. The word so, that little monosyllable packs into it all sorts of wonder and amazement. We cannot define it. We can't fathom it. We can't fully explore it or analyze it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God plucked from his breast the darling of heaven and gave him for the likes of me and you. That, my friends, is an incredible, amazing love. No wonder Isaac Watts said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? His love's amazing. Another hymn says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. I love the hymn that says, Love sent my Savior to die in my stead, why should he love me so? Yeah, I'm amazed at it. I'm surprised by it. It causes perpetual wonder.
And one more, Elizabeth Clefane in that hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, closes the hymn by saying, And from my smitten heart with tears, as I stand beneath the cross, and I think about what he's done for me, and from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess. Number one, the wonder of his glorious love. And number two, and my unworthiness. That God would love somebody like me. My beloved, may I never get over that fact. May I never take it for granted. May I never adopt an entitlement mentality and think that he owes it to me. We could go on and on, talk about the wonder of providence. We're talking about living a life of wonder today. Wonder at Christ. Wonder at his grace. Wonder at his amazing love. Wonder at his providence. And that's what our text is talking about in Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, Lord, why would you even take notice of somebody like me? I'm amazed by it. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? I think about the many blessings like Brother Coleman listed here. I don't know that I would be as deliberate to think of 179. If I was thinking accurately, I could. But the fact is, dear friends, I need to at least come up with a list of 10 or 12 how good the Lord's been to me. Hasn't he been that good? Think of all the prayers he's answered in your life. You say, well, that's in the past. I need help right now and he's not helping me now. He will. He will. He's faithful. He provides for his own. He knows your condition. He sees every sparrow that falls. His bounty and his goodness is incessant. And the Lord has provided for my needs all the days of my life. I love the Hymn we sing sometimes, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that says, All I have needed, Thy hand has provided. Can you say that today? I can tell you, as I look back in the past, all I've ever needed. He's been faithful to me. He's provided for my needs. I'm amazed by that. Because I sure don't deserve it. Think about the wonder of this book, the wonder of the Word. Psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 161, I stand in awe at thy word. Lord, I'm just amazed by it. You know, I've been reading this book for 50 years now, studying the Bible since I was 11 years old. But I'll tell you, I still see treasures that jump out at me that I'd never noticed before. It's an amazing book. It's not anything that we can master. The Bible's an amazing book. The wonder of his word. Think about how God can use it to correct faulty thinking. How he can use it to encourage the downcast. You ever come to church and you thought, okay, I just don't think there's any hope for the future. But you left with a new sense of encouragement because God used his word to strengthen you. Yes, my friends, the wonder of his word, the wonder of his church. Psalm 84.1, how amiable, how beautiful are your tabernacles, O Lord. Notice that's the language of exclamation. Lord, I'm just amazed at the, how lovely your church is, how lovely the place where the Savior appears. Indeed, my friends, learn to live with a sense of wonder. The late Warren Wiersbe wrote this prayer, talking about living a life of wonder. He says, Loving Father, make my heart like that of a little child. Give me again the excitement and the joy of wonder. Remove the scales from my eyes. Can you pray this today? The callousness from my heart. The stubbornness from my will. And enable me to enjoy the wonder of it all. Deliver me from routine worship. From business as usual. From form without force. And liturgy without life. 
May your Holy Spirit energize that new creation that is now within me, and may it be ever new, ever wonderful, to the glory of your name. Amen. Indeed, my friends, what a good prayer it is. Lord, give me the wonder of a little child. Oh.